Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Hi, my name is Vanessa Lem. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of New South Wales. And Right, and you listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. <laughs> From now on, <laughs> yes. Thanks very much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Julie-Ann Van Loon about her book, The Thinking Woman. This is part two of a two-part interview. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Beth, and thanks for having me. To follow on directly from last week, we were discussing labour. My labour can't be sold, or this property is not mine, nor yours, and shouldn't belong to anybody. Uh, it's, it, it seems such a radical thing to say, and yet, if you've got any kind of collectivist bone in your body, you know in your heart of hearts that's not only true, it's the right way to look at things, <laughs> in my view. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, definitely think so. I remember many years ago when I was quite young, I met some people who were squatters and they had very alternative ideas and they explained how they used to work in a factory because their mines were so valuable they weren't going to sell their mines. And I've, I've, always, I've always gone back and, and thought about that statement mm. over the years. So mm. they'd, they'd sell their, their, like their physical labour, their body, but, but not their minds. Yeah. And, and I thought that's really interesting because I know quite a few people who have professions, you know, social workers and, you know, say accountants, and their job is so draining and so taxing on them and on the weekend, they, you know, it's like they can't have their brain back. That's right. And yeah. it, it's gone because of all the, all the sort of mental effort they have to put into their work. And emotional effort too. Yeah, and yeah. Emotional, yeah. emotional effort. And even just, just before I came here today, I was reading about vets mm. and how they have such a high suicide rate. Really, And, you know, I, I'd never really thought about it before. Mm. And when you who need to have your animal put to sleep, you, you call them, and especially the house call vets, that tends to make up most of their work. Mm. And I hadn't really ever stopped to think how stressful that would be. Mm. And so now I, I thought, just as I was driving over, I thought, right, I'm going to have to go and get a big bunch of flowers and take them to my vet. Yes. So I think if, if everybody could do that <laughs> and just really thank their vet for everything yeah. oh, and make them know how important they are, 
Fabulous, yeah, and and it, it is. They're giving so much of themselves. That's right. Aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how do you disentangle yourself from that role? You know, like it becomes when it's when it's something that you're passionate about. That, that sort of drives you, it becomes harder and harder to separate. The factory worker example is a, is a great example of, of something that, that, that you can imagine divvying up that way, even if it's not actually entirely possible. But when your heart's in it, you know, like with social work or, you know, for me with teaching creative writing, you know, writing fiction is my first love. It's very closely related to my sense of who I am. And so you start working too much overtime or feeling like you're dropping the ball with doing as good a job as you can, and your self-esteem suffers hugely. Now, the next chapter is very interesting. You've named that fear. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Again, something we all grapple with, and and also something that's been written about quite a lot in philosophical terms over the centuries because it's, it's human. And I, I struggled with this with this chapter because I wanted to talk to Julia Kristeva about her theory of the abject, and I, I emailed her and she said pitched her my book and she said this sounds like a great book I'd really like to be involved but I'm too busy just now could you get back to me in six months I said great you know I was really excited about her having her involved been reading her work you know since I was a teenager and. Anyway, six months passed and I <laughs> emailed her again. She said, oh, look, this book sounds great, but I'm just right at the moment. I'm trying juggling X and Y. Maybe next April. Could you get back to me next April? And, and uh, so this went on. <laughs> As you can imagine, my, I'm writing my book, nearly finished. One chapter to go. It's fear. I really want to speak to Julia Christova. And... I decided, okay, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Got in contact again, same answer. And I thought, does she give this answer to everybody? But I don't think she does. Like she was genuinely supportive of the project. But anyway, I I went away and thought, okay, well, who else? Who else could I use as a thinker? Because it was really important to me with this book that it was based on conversation, that that I was able to go and physically sit with that person whose work I'd been reading and talk about it. And... It's a really different book to anything I've written before because of that. It's kind of got a collective spirit to it, which I really enjoyed in terms of the process. And and I think it's a big part of why the book seems to have kind of worked and connected with, with readers as well. So I thought, okay, well, is there some way I could still use Julia Kristeva's work on fear and still get a conversation in? And so I started to think about women activists. Uh, So again, this is sort of an extension of thinking through the question of what is philosophy. And I started to think, well, is activism an expression of philosophy? And so following that train of thought, I thought, well, what about what about if I looked at some women activists in this chapter and spoke to them about their fear of stepping forward? And also the impact <laughs> of being in, in very much in the public eye with, with whatever form of activism they're engaged in. And so I, I thought, I'll have a go at this. And I, and I went and spoke to Helen Caldicott, who's in her 80s now. And for listeners who are not aware of her work, she's a real veteran of anti-nuclear activism in Australia. She's been more than 40 years as a pretty much full-time activist in that space, which is an extraordinary effort when you think about it. So she's a, a GP. Actually, she became a specialist in child pedi- paediatrics and uh, child health. And then she started thinking through the 
potential impact of nuclear disasters on health and she saw very much a role for herself around and very closely related to the oath that she'd taken as a medical doctor to have an interest in the health of everybody (laughs) and she married that with um, her role as an activist for well for a clean a clean planet an early early clean planet activist and so I went to speak with her because I was interested in particularly the anti nuclear movement as a form of activism that works with and against fear so it's so it's very caught up in fears of a, a potential future that is well, the end of the world, actually, especially at the time that Helen Caldercutt, she was born in 1938, she grew up through the the Second World War and Hiroshima, the Cold War that followed that, nuclear, global-scale nuclear war was a, a, a real risk. She argues it still is, I think she's right. And so she, and interestingly, one of the real drivers for her work as an activist came through fiction. So she... She read Neville Shute's novel, which is which was published in the 60s, based in Melbourne, which was where Helen was living at the time, and she saw a future for Melbourne that scared the hell out of her. <laughs> and so it is interesting to see how fear motivates positively um, to enable Helen to get up and speak up um, for what she believes in, and, and, and that really carries her through. So fear leads to anger, which leads to speech, which leads to change. And she was incredibly active and in the media spotlight, particularly through the 1980s in the US, where she had moved to, by that stage, to follow her doctor who worked at the Harvard Medical School. Helen worked there too, so she's a leader in her field in her own right. But so she was, there was, she had more airplay during one of those federal elections in the States than than Reagan. She was really front and centre and it was a very hot topic and so she became incredibly famous overseas. She's probably more famous in the States than she is here, I would say. But anyway, we had a fascinating conversation about fear as a motivator but also she argues that it's a, it's a positive tool that, that when, you're, when you first feel fear and you, can, you feel those um, chemicals running through your body, it's, it's in order to get you to move. <laughs> and I think that that's interesting. So anyway, look, I, um, I could talk endlessly about this chapter because it's quite complicated, but I looked at Helen Caldercott's work and I looked also at Rosie, Rosie Bradotti's work in the domestic violence space because I think that's a very different scale of tackling fear and speaking up as a result of violence that that is that is about control through fear for women in 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 usually in the domestic space and then I marry both those kind of careers if you want to call them that in terms of their activism that the the work of of Rosie the work of Helen with Julia Christavis thinking about the abject and I start to look at misogyny in 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 relation to Christavis idea of the abject and I just—I'm talking a bit too much here, but I just want to want to give a, give a little demonstration for people who are not familiar with Julia Kristeva's work of what she's talking about here. So she comes to her theory of the abject through remembering a childhood experience of being absolutely terrified, for want of a better word here, of the the thin skin on the top of a glass of hot milk. This was something that she could not bring her childhood self to touch. And this is where her theory of the abject stems from. It's looking at something that is so horrifically other to you that it makes you shiver. You can't go near it. And and you immediately kind of saying to yourself, if subconsciously, if not consciously, 
that is other, that is not me, and the, and conscious then of this border between self and other. And I look at extending this idea of the abject to some instances of the way that men recoil from women. So this is where I relate it to misogyny, um, particularly in the case of um, Rosie Braydotti. And I didn't speak to Ro- Rosie Braydotti in person, but she has a fantastically effective autobiography which tells the story of her, her you know, the circumstances that led to the to the death of her son. And in and through that, she, she goes into some scenes between herself and her former partner, which do pretty much lay out for us the kind of misogynistic assumptions that lay beneath quite often that uh, sort of form of intimate violence. So it's a very disturbing chapter it was well it was a, I can't really say that it disturbs me as a reader because I can't put myself in that position but it disturbed me as a writer to write it and yet I think it's really important to look at philosophically what goes on when we fear another now you're listening to radical philosophy on radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial and I'm speaking with Dr Julianne Van Loon about her publication the Thinking Woman. Now, wonder, that's a, that's a fantastic topic, really, and I think that people really don't, they don't think too much about wonder. I think it's almost connected with play because it's something we have when we're young and we tend to lose it when we get older, don't we? Yeah, we do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, in you know, in this particular case, I think I probably knew already that I was enthusiastic to look at the work of Marina Warner. And she's a UK-based mythographer, um, I guess is one word you could use to describe her. I mean, her work sort of travels here and there, but she, she writes novels. She's got a particular interest in fairy tales and myths, but her interest in both, in, in, in any of those cases, is very much driven by an interest in women's voices and also in the silencing of women's voices over history. So she looks at some of the kind of common myths and fairy tales in in terms of gender and power. But she's also a bit like uh, Siri Hustved's fascination with play. She has just got this absolute radar for anything to do with wonder, transformation, magic, (laughs) all these kinds of things. and, And it's interesting when you... When you follow a particular thinker or writer and read back from their early work right through to their more contemporary work, particularly when they're as prolific as someone like Marina Warner, and you can just see this fascination. It's just coming up all, all the time. So she writes about magic carpets and <laughs> uh, this, this kind of thing. She writes about Bluebeard and she's, she's in love with wonder. <laughs> And she talks about wonder as being a sort of close cousin to curiosity. And she had a – so she, she was – her mother was Italian Catholic and she grew up uh, in her early childhood in Egypt. Her father ran a, um, a bookshop in Cairo and she went to boarding school, a Catholic boarding school in the UK as quite a young person and she was hugely influenced by the stories that were told within that tradition and by the nuns who taught her in that school. And she describes in a write about this, transcribed this part of our interview in The Thinking Woman, she, she describes um, her fascination with some of the stories that came out of Catholicism 
as taught to her at that time. And St Paul was one, for example. And St Paul has, you know, he, in terms of his life story as it's told, fantastic adventures. He he goes off here, there and everywhere and the and fantastic and wonderful things happen to him and on account of him. And Marina describes wanting to be St Paul. She she identified with St Paul in those stories and she wanted to go out and have a life like he had. And yet at the same time, in the same tradition, the teachings of St Paul in terms of how to be a good Catholic were used to silence women. So there's this, um, there's this teaching that comes from St Paul that says that uh, in order to be a good woman you must remain silent, that that's part of what being a good woman is. And so Marina's kind of getting these very mixed messages through that, through, through that, up, that upbringing and that, that fires up her, her, her early interest in, in the silencing of women and in the denial of the adventure <laughs> to the woman protagonist. And so she goes back through, and this takes her into fairy tales. She goes back to through a lot of the tradition of Western fairy tales and really looks into Bluebeard's wife, for example, those kinds of things. One of the uh, really fascinating pieces of work that she wrote that I talk about in the book is she looks at, and this is from a chapter on metamorphosis, she looks at metamorphosis as an example of the marriage of science and art and she takes as her case study Maria Merian who is a, um, a Dutch botanist from the uh, 17th century who travelled to Suriname which was an early Dutch colony at a time where women didn't get the opportunity to have those kind of uh, St Paulish adventures <laughs> and she goes there as a woman in her 40s takes her you know, leaves her husband takes her 20 something daughter with her and they go off and study insects and plants in Suriname through drawing and and Warner really tracks how influential Merian's drawings of the life cycle of various in- insects in in the Surinamese context were on ideas about science, you know, that followed uh, from that period. So it's a really interesting example of the centrality of wonder and curiosity and art to knowledge, which I I just find endless, endlessly kind of fascinating territory. That is really fascinating. Now your final chapter is on friendship. Right. This is a very important topic, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And here is my other kind of capital P philosopher <laughs> in, Ro- in uh, Rosie Bradotti, who's a professor at the University of Utrecht. But she has a history here in Melbourne, which, which I found fascinating as well. So she was Italian-born and came to Australia in the uh, early 1970s when her family you know, faced... Uh, poverty in in Italy and she came as a I think she was 14 15 something like that and so as a teenager the eldest in her family and at the time she was devastated to to leave Italy and Australia you know everybody wants to come to Australia now but in 1971 in Italy they did not necessarily it was a long way away nobody knew anything about it it was kind of the end of the earth in in uh, in Rosie's mind and so she really didn't want to come but uh, she didn't want to leave her younger siblings either so she comes to Australia early 70s she has no English she's sent to the um, her family is sent to the early migrant camps that were around at that time and she hates it, but um, she has to learn English really, really fast and she, she does her best and she tries. And then the family moves out of the uh, early migrant hostel, rather not I said camp, I meant hostel, Villawood I think was then, to Fitzroy. And she goes to Fitzroy High and it's a really interesting story of a student who is who has a really 
clear capacity for academic work, but uh, English as a second language kind of issues. And her teachers at Fitzroy High at that time, which was at that time known as the roughest high school in the state of Victoria, her teachers uh, absolutely go out of their way to, to turn... Rosie's experience of high school in Australia around and she leaves year 12 as one of the perhaps in fact the leading kind of year 12 score to get into university in the state and she's on the front page of the age and she gets this scholarship to go to ANU and uh, she studies philosophy that's her that's her, that's her thing <laughs> and then she goes from there to the Sorbonne in uh, Paris and she's studying philosophy with and alongside all the famous, you know, new French philosophers. And uh, she goes to lectures by Simone de Beauvoir. It's, you know, it's uh, Paris at a time, you know, not too far off the revolutionary period of the 60s. Everybody's just in love with and alive with philosophy. So she's she's had a really interesting, interesting life. But look, her, her work on friendship, it really stems from well, a couple of things. One is her experience of nomadism, of this kind of being this global nomad, of moving from one country to another, from one language to another. And she argues that this is kind of our contemporary state, that this is what's going in our world on in our world at the moment in a way that has never quite been to this degree in history. We're moving around and we and we have this not this kind of not just this opportunity in some cases for um, in some cases it's forced this nomadism so there's all kinds of variations of it but the fact that we have to actually think of ourselves as global subjects is new and and we need to really think through philosophically what that means and she's also a proponent of the school widely known as post-humanism and some of your listeners have uh, no doubt come across this and it's it's a uh, branch of philosophy that takes into account the Anthropocene, that is the idea that humans have changed the planet so irrevocably that we're now in a completely new kind of an epoch and we need to come to terms with that and it's urgent. So Bredotti's work is a philosophy for here and now. She really challenges us to be up to and worthy of the challenges that face us right now and her work on friendship really kind of brings those those ideas together by challenging the border between the the idea of there being a border between you and I so she's in terms of classical philosophy she is in favour of the school of monism, which comes from Spinoza. So the idea that everything is interconnected and that we are one, all of us on the planet. And so I take those ideas and apply them to friendship. And in more kind of masculinist, Western uh, philosophical terms in philosophy, friendship has been spoken about in a very masculine kind of a way. There's very rarely any mention of, of women, even in fairly contemporary popular philosophy. So A.C. Grayling, for example, who may be known to some of your listeners as a popular philosopher from the UK, he's got a recent book on friendship. There's no mention of women's thinking in that book, even where he goes to look at examples of friendship in literature. He takes no examples of women being friends with one another. You know, it's all it's all male. So this is sort of a exclusivity to the way that friendship has been uh, written about, thought about, and so on in classical philosophy. And Rosie Bradotti just puts a bomb under that in such in such a stylish 
an energetic kind of a way and I, I highly recommend her work if you haven't come across her before the most recent book is simply called The Post-Human oh, It sounds fantastic the whole book it's uh, very interesting where would people get a copy? Well it's out with um, New South which is a, a university publisher but they've got a good distribution system and, and this book certainly for them is, is you know um, very deliberate attempt to cross the divide between academia and a broader readership so it's pretty much adding all good bookshops at the moment it came out in um, March and so it's still in its kind of infancy uh, which means you know most bookshops only keep uh, books on the shelf for about three months so just at the moment it should still be in any good bookshop a few months on from now we'll see <laughs> uh, but you can certainly do, uh, order it directly through uh, through New South if it's not in your local bookshop. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks very much, Beth, for having me. And I've been speaking with Dr Julianne von Loon about her publication, The Thinking Woman. This is part two of a two-part interview. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And do stay tuned for the fabulous... Swing and sway.